Our Father, we come to this word with stubborn hearts and, and, and deaf ears, and we pray that your spirit would burst through all of the stubbornness and all of the deafness, and that you would speak to our hearts, and that we might become more, uh, more who you want us to be, that your fire, as we sang earlier, that your fire would burn our hearts down to faith, so that we might build, be built back up with Christ at the center instead of ourselves. So we pray for that to happen, and we pray it with confidence, knowing that your word is power. And so we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a really important question for us to ask, to kind of always be asking is, what, what do you behold what do you behold? What do you, what do you cherish? What do you look to above all things? What do you behold? The Bible has a thesis, and the thesis is this. We become like the thing that we behold. Or you could put it this way. We become like the thing that we worship. You become what you behold. And one of my favorite examples of this is Psalm 115. Listen to what the psalmist says. Their idols are silver and gold. These idols are the work of human hands. The, the idols have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they don't smell. They have hands, but they don't feel. Feet, but they don't walk. And those who make the, those idols become like them. So do all who trust in the idol. See, see what the Bible Bible's saying? You become like the thing that you worship. If you worship an idol, it makes you like the idol. It, def, it makes you deaf and blind and unable to feel. It, it numbs you. It dulls you. Have you felt dulled after sin? Like less human? Flattened in a sense? That's what sin does. It flattens us like the idol. Conversely, though, if we worship the one true living God, it deepens us. It makes us into the image of God. It, it, it shapes us after God so that we're shaped more into the image of Christ. And so we have been in the passion of, of Christ now for a few weeks. We looked at the arrest, at the trial before the high priest, and we began Jesus' interaction with Pilate, and we're, we're still there this morning, as we just read. Um, and, and what we've kind of, the themes that we've looked at over the last few weeks is, like two weeks ago, we looked at the insufficiency of the human heart. The insufficiency of the human heart. The human heart has some serious problems, and we looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Last week, we looked at how the heart goes wrong. It can go wrong in a couple of different ways. One, it can operate out of fear. That's, how, that's what Pilate's doing in all of this. Or it can operate out of self-righteousness and anger and pride that flow out of that. That's what the, crowd, the, the Jewish high priests and the crowds, they're operating out of pride and anger and self-righteousness. Pilate's operating out of fear. And those are basically the two places we go. That's where the heart goes. Now, but... This week, we're going to go a little bit deeper into the heart and consider why we go in those directions. And here's the reason why. Are you ready? It's false worship. 
False worship is behind all sin. Martin Luther, commenting on the Ten Commandments, said, if you're breaking any one of the Ten Commandments, you're definitely breaking the first commandment. No other gods. Because all sin is a result of false worship. Beholding the wrong thing or things. So this morning, as we, as we look at this passage, we're going to consider what Pilate beholds. What's underneath his sphere is his object of worship. What does Pilate behold? What does Pilate worship? And then we're going to consider what the crowds behold or worship. And then the final question that I want us to settle in on is, is what do you behold? What do you behold? What do you worship? What do you put before you as the, the primary thing in your life? Okay, so those are the questions. What Pilate beholds, what the Jews behold, and, what, and then the question, what do you behold? So Pilate is in a pickle, and the pickle is this. He doesn't believe that Jesus has done anything wrong. He said in chapter 18, I believe it was verse 38, Jesus has done nothing wrong whatsoever. The Greek is emphatic. Pilate says, like, nothing that I can see that Jesus has done. So that's the first situation. But here's the, on the other hand, he's got this, these crowds that will not be, it does not appear that they're going to be satisfied until Jesus is put to death. So Pilate's kind of between a rock and a hard place. I've got this innocent man. If he goes, the whole, the whole town could revolt. All of Israel could declare war on us. And that's not good. I'm governing this place. I don't want things to get out of control, but I also don't want to put an innocent man to death by crucifixion. And there's something unique about this man. Pilate is sees. So he doesn't know what to do. That's his, that's his dilemma. And last week he gave them a choice. Remember the choice that he gave? Crowds. You can have Jesus. The truth. The life of the world, the light of the world, who through three years of ministry has been pouring himself out, bringing healing, food, harmony, even to the weather. He, he's been doing all of these wonderful things. You can have that man in your midst, or you can have Barabbas, a murderer, a robber, a man of violence, and what, remember who they choose? Barabbas. They want Barabbas to live with them and reject Christ. So the long-awaited Savior is here. God is on the dock, we might say, and he is rejected. He's not rejected neutrally by the crowds. He's rejected enthusiastically. Crucify him. Crucify him. And so Pilate tries to kind of massage the situation. Verse 1. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Maybe, Pilate thinks to himself, if we beat Jesus to a bloody pulp, it will satisfy the crowds, assuage their anger, and we can be done with all of this. And a flogging was a, was a brutal thing. It, many died, died from it. It was a whip with shards of metal and shards of bone in it that would, that would literally rip a person um, apart. And so he does that. And, and, and he's sent to these angry soldiers who relish the opportunity to beat up what they, who they believe to be a Jewish rebel. 
Verse 2, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. And Pilate, verse 4, comes back to them and says, "Um, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Christ is presented to them. Uh, wearing his mocking uh, royal attire, the crown of thorns, the purple robe, tortured, mauled beyond recognition. And Pilate says in verse 5, Behold the man. Will Pilate's plan work? Will he stir up just, just, a, just a dash of sympathy from the crowds? Look at verse 6. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate's plan is a total flop. But still, as Newbegin points out, God's plan moves forward with majestic certainty. So this exasperated Pilate in verse 6 says, and Jamie captured it in the way you you read it, Jamie, take him yourselves and crucify him. I, I find no guilt in him. Now, I don't believe Pilate's literally telling them to crucify him. Pilate's just like, I give up. And they respond, he must be crucified because he made himself to be a son of God. Then look at verse 8. When Pilate hears this statement, he was even more afraid. Now, John has not talked about Pilate being afraid. That was just, we talked about Pilate's fear, but that was, he's, he's, he's acting like a fearful person. In all of this. Now John says he's actually afraid. He was afraid, and now he's more afraid. He's conflicted. He sees no issue with Jesus, but he's got a serious issue with the Jewish riot. That's a big problem for Pilate, who's supposed to govern. His one job is just make sure things stay stable and governed. So, what is he to do? What is Pilate to do? Back to headquarters. Look at verse 9. He entered his headquarters again. And said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And again, we said that there's there's an irony to all of this because it appears as though Jesus is on trial, that God is on the dock, right? That's not the case. Jesus, the world is on trial. And here Jesus is issuing uh, degrees of guilt to all the parties involved. He who delivered me has the greater sin, the greater guilt. One commentator says it's a minor miracle that Jesus doesn't get slapped for insolence. Saying that to the king, like declaring Pilate guilty. Not as guilty, but guilty still. From then on, verse 12, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate somehow is gripped by Jesus. And John's comment there that he was more afraid comes in response to the Jews saying he declares himself to be son of God. The Romans believed in divine-like human beings, that they, that they existed, that that was possible. And I believe Pilate thinks this is, this is some kind of 
son of God. This, this, this situation is unique, and I'm very troubled at the prospect of putting this person to death. That's Pilate's inner turmoil. But still, still, there is a greater God that governs Pilate's actions. Okay? He's taken by Jesus, but he, does, he, he sees Jesus in some way for who he is, but he doesn't behold Jesus. Right? See the difference? Jesus is not the ultimate for him. There's a God that's governing Pilate's actions. And let's look at what it is. Look at verse 12 again. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And look at, look at verse 13. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. And then verse 16, he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The thing that governs Pilate's actions, did you see what it was? It's his career, it's his boss. Caesar, the Jewish crowd say, hey, look, you do this. We're telling your boss that you're not a good employee. You're not a good governor. And it was at that that he sent him over to be uh, crucified. It's, it's Pilate's career. It's his prestigious post as governor. The crowd says, you're no friend of Caesar if you release him. And that's the trigger. Christ must be tr- crucified. So Pilate sees Jesus, but he beholds his job, his career, his boss, Caesar. And that's what drives the fear, that false worship of, 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 the, fair, of, of the Caesar. And in this regard, Pilate's like a lot of churchgoers. A lot of people in church find Jesus to be interesting. He's compelling. He's unique, good. There's something unique about him. They, in other words, a lot of church scores, they see Jesus, but they don't behold him. He doesn't have any tangible impact in their lives. They're still going about business as usual. They're still serving other gods, other idols. The, the, listen to what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about idols. An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that holds my life and my devotion, anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to be vital, anything that is essential to me, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. An idol is anything that holds a controlling position in my life. What's controlling Pilate in this moment? His sense of innocence and something unique about Jesus or the prospect of losing his job? It's the prospect of losing his job. That's what's controlling him. And that's his idol. It's his career. His boss. Well, that's Pilate. Now, what what do the crowds behold? The the Jewish high priests and the leaders and, and the crowds... They insist on the death of Christ. And Pilate, Pilate's a semi-sympathetic character, but he's, I don't want to mis, 
characterized him as this kind, loving soul. He's mocking the Jewish crowds in this, in this uh, moment here, I, I believe. Verse 14, he said, remember, Jesus is, is bloody and he's mocked. He's got the crown of thorns, the purple robe. And he says, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. I mean, it's an explicit declaration of what they behold. They behold Caesar. And in this regard, this is the theme of God's people. Remember, let's a little bit Bible history here. Remember Moses at the burning bush? And remember, he's, God, tell, God appears to Moses at the burning bush. He says, you will deliver my people and tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. And Moses says, well, why, on what basis should I tell the people to let the people? Why, why are they to go? And God says, God gives an answer. So that they may, the Hebrew word is abad, serve me. In other words, the book of Exodus is the movement from the bad service, abad, the bad enslavement to the Egyptians, the oppression of the Egyptians, to good, loving, life-giving submission to the Lord. And God was to be their king. Well, fast forward uh, hundreds of years to about 500 years, and the people of, of Israel want a king like the other nations. We want a king like the other nations. And so God grants them the request, and they have the united monarchy, and and, and, but the, 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 that, that request was a, for a king was a rejection of God's kingship over them, of God as king over them. And if you read the prophets, oh, time and time again, the prophets are saying, Israel, Judah, you have not listened. You, you, you don't want God as king. You're not submitting to your king. You've rejected God as king. And finally, God shows up. In the person of Jesus, the king is before them. And again, they reject the kingdom of God and God as king. We have no king but Caesar, they say. We want this worldly leader, Caesar. They reject the, the, both the king and the kingdom of God. And here's the thing. Consequently, um, Judaism, as it exists in this time, writes its own death sentence. Because in a few decades, that king, Caesar, will bite back and will destroy them in a bloody and awful siege at the, there in Jerusalem. And the people of God would be dispersed, mostly in Europe, for 2,000 years. Not until 1948 would many of them return to, to this land. So, so fear See, the fear driving Pilate, the, the self-righteous pride that drives the, the crowds. And those are the things that drive us as well. And those fruits of the, of the, of the fallen heart are a, are a product, a produce of false worship that lay underneath. False worship of beholding the wrong thing. Caesar beholds his career. The Jews behold their captor. No king but Caesar. And the captor, Rome, will do what every idol does. It will kill. It will kill. It's lethal. False worship 
Just like the, the psalmist says, Psalm 115, you become like the things you worship. Idols are dead. All of creation fades and dies. And if you worship, you will die too. It will break you apart slowly, but surely it will break you apart. It will unravel social relationships. It will tear things apart. That's what idols do. And eventually they will kill. Paul says in Romans, God made us for himself, or I'm sorry, God made himself known, but we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and we have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And what that has done for us is it's produced futility of mind. A futility of mind. The glory of God is standing before them. John keeps saying, this is his glory. The Son of Man must be glorified. This is it happening right here. And they all miss it. They don't see it. So the final question is, what, what do you behold? What do you behold? John, his, in his gospel, he's giving us the answer to what we should behold. Pilate, just like Caiaphas several chapters back, who said it's right for one man to die for the whole world, for, the, for, all, for all the people. You know, that was, he, was, he was saying it out of just utilitarian sort of ethics. But it's true. And Pilate here is speaking truth unwittingly. How does that happen? How do, how does, how do people, the, the opponents of Jesus, speak truth about Jesus? How do they manage to do that? And why does John want us to see that they do that? The reason is this. Gerard Manley Hopkins once wrote that Christ plays in 10,000 places. Christ is creator and sustainer. You can't, you can't resist him. You can't escape his domain, which is all of creation. And so to resist him is to become this bundle of contradictions and irony. And that's what Pilate is right here, an irony. Because he's saying these things mockingly, but he's actually speaking the truth. And, 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 and this is how, at the same time that the world is, is, is putting Jesus on trial, it's actually the world that's on trial. And the secular powers and the religious powers are on trial. And the world convicts itself in a flat rejection of Christ, of truth, of life, of light. We don't want it. But the scene also reveals God. Christ flogged and mocked, wearing this purple robe and crown of thorns. And Pilate says, as he's standing there, Behold the man, verse 5. Do you remember what Isaiah said, anticipating this moment? Behold, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He looked subhuman. And Pilate says, behold the man. Who is this man that they are to behold that they can't even recognize? He is, he's our head. He's the head of the human race. We, all of humanity finds themselves either under Adam and under God's judgment or under the man, Jesus, and under his blessing and all of the righteousness and blessing that comes from his his perfect obedience. You're one or the other, the human race. In Adam or in Christ. 
And this tortured, bleeding man is the man. He's the, he's the one for us. And he had to be a man because only if he's one of us can he die for us. Can he atone for human sin? He had to be like us. But he's also not like us. And Pilate makes that point as well. Look at verse 13. When Pilate heard these words, uh, the words that he was the son of God, or that he claims to be the son of God from the Jews, he brought Jesus out and sat him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, verse 14, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. Now, I want you to notice, John is, he's said it, he's given us a lot of places, a lot of times, a lot of information about what moment this is. And John is signaling, this is the culmination point. This, this, this is something big's about to happen. The, the representative of the world's greatest power is about to make a declaration. Pilate says, verse 14, Behold your king. Do you see the king? Frederick Bruner says, This is an imperial, from, from, from Pilate, this is an imperial decree. And we are to read it as a coronation. Do you see his glory? Do you see the king in his glory, standing there before the crowds? Because he's conquering sin. He's conquering Satan. And in the process, he's putting to shame the powers and wisdom of the world. And do you see what the crowds, how they respond? Away. Away with him. The the, the Greek um, verb there is eron, eron. And that's a verb that showed up way back at the beginning of the gospel, at a really important point in the gospel at the beginning, when John the Baptist beholds Jesus. Do you remember what he says? Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Aaron! And get this. Did you see the time? It's sixth hour on the day of the preparation of the Passover. This is Friday of Passover week, the day before Saturday, the Sabbath, at noon. And this is when the slaughter of all the lambs for all the people in Jerusalem was to begin. And at that moment, Pilate says, behold your king, the lamb, we just sing it, the lamb of God, crown him with many crowns. See, the idols that we behold, they take, and they take, and they take. Meanwhile, the king of creation, Christ, What does he do? He gives. He gives. He gives. That's what he's done his whole ministry. And here, what looks like a complete tragedy, John calls, Jesus calls, his glory. Because what is he doing? He's giving at a greater degree than we've ever seen in his ministry to this point. He's giving everything for all the universe, for redemption. Isaiah 53 again says, He was oppressed and afflicted, Uh, And yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter that is silent. He did not open his mouth. See, while the, the powers of the world flex and flaunt, they will be exposed as weak and worthless in the end. And that's actually happening right here, right here in this passage. We see the powers of the world and the wisdom of this age brought to shame. Like Christ is the one that was stripped and beaten. 
But really, it's the secular powers of Rome, the religious powers of Judaism that are exposed as weak and and beaten, literally beaten in this moment. Because any power void of Christ is a faux power. It's a fraud. It's an impediment to the truth. So let me ask you the question. What do you behold? Behold the man. Behold the king. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for its surprise, its shock, its endless um, depth that we, 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 we have barely scratched the surface. We thank you that the risen Lord, the ascended Lord, who sits at the right hand of God the Father, has the marks of the Lamb slain. And we thank you that you have invited us, sinners, who, truth be told, we'd be right there with the crowds, yelling, crucify him, or just afraid and unwilling to do anything. That's us, and yet you still invite us to come under Christ, to find salvation, to receive his blessings, his righteousness as ours, and we give you thanks for that. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.